0: Okay. Uh, Hello, everyone. And welcome to today's panel discussion of Kristen Radke's Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. My name is Rebecca LaRue, and I'm a librarian here, and I will be moderating this panel today. Uh, Let's start off with some introductions, if that's okay with everyone. My
1: name is also Rebecca. I am a student of um, art and design, digital art and design, and I'm really happy to be a part of the panel as well. Hi everyone,
2: I'm Cheryl Bundy. I teach over in the COM department, so I teach uh, COM 101 and 102 and literature and creative writing, uh, and I also work here at the Speaking and Writing Center. I'm happy to be a part of the discussion.
3: Hi there, my name is Chris Matusek, and I teach in the Digital Art and Design department here on, on campus. I'm also the coordinator of that department, and we have classes like Introduction to Computer Art and Digital Imaging, Digital
0: Illustration, and things like that. All right, awesome. Let's get started with a super easy question. What is a graphic novel? Um, How is it different from a comic book? And what has it been like for you to read this particular graphic novel? Uh, Chris, do you want to start?
3: Sure, I can start. Um, so, a graphic novel is, uh, has some similar characteristics to comic books, but one of the main differences between a graphic novel and a comic book is the fact that it's a longer story, and it comes to completion. So, comic books typically have a series of comic books that follow in sequence to each other, and graphic novels have a start, a middle, and an end, and all the traditional things that you would see in a regular novel, only a lot more
2: visuals. I'll just add on to that too, Chris, if you don't mind. Um, Just that with graphic novels, yes, they definitely have a complete story that they're representing, um, but they can be grounded really in any genre. So um, that might be fantasy, it might be like a superhero story, it could be realistic fiction, it could be nonfiction. So it really covers a wide range of texts, which is pretty cool. I
1: agree with what was just said, um, but I would add that I, find that graphic novels can sometimes have their own canon especially if they're in a larger story arc that will involve like say marvel comics will have a lot of graphic novels that they'll put out and they'll have their own separate story like sometimes like set in the future or set into like a an apocalyptic time that doesn't necessarily include um the regular canon of the larger comic book genre all
0: right awesome Going on, are there ways that Radke's style amplifies the feeling of isolation and loneliness in this book that that the book is exploring?
2: You know, I'll take that one. Um, and if you don't mind, I just want to back up a second um, mm-hmm. because w- there was a second part to that first question yes. that we didn't get a chance to respond to, and I want to make oh, sure we my bad. dive into that one. <laughs> and, and it was a question about what it was like to actually read this particular graphic novel. Um, and I find that, I mean, I've read quite a few graphic novels in my own experience, but um, in looking at reviews of Radke's book, um, a lot of people likened it to like a documentary film. And I like that word that has stuck with me a lot. I really feel like that captures it pretty well because um, even though she's writing a little bit about her life, she's writing about a big topic and the title of the book itself, this journey through American loneliness, um, it's, it's a big, weighty topic. Um, and so she really is exploring that kind of like a documentary filmmaker would, um, drawing upon an interview, history, um, research and psychology, and connecting it to her personal experience. So it really reminds me of that. Um, And I think even in just actually reading the book, the style of it reminds me of documentary. Um, For example, in a documentary film, we might see Uh, you know, after one segment of the film explores some aspect of loneliness, we might suddenly cut to an image from a television series featuring a cowboy. Uh, And the book kind of feels like that, where all of a sudden, okay, now we're with cowboys, what's this about? So there's like no transition necessarily. And so it reminded me of watching cinema um, and, and watching documentary in particular where we might move to a new topic in that way. If the book were not a graphic novel, she'd have to write transitions and write the connective tissue into it, and so the visuals, you know, do that, they accomplish that. So that that was one thing I noted. I
4: think question is just you guys talking we
0: supposed to talk I think the way we I,
4: know
0: the I think we were planning on just having our little couple of questions and then opening the floor to questions.
3: Okay, so I'm going to follow up with that second question a little bit because um, the interesting part for me is this is actually the first graphic novel I read and when Troy asked me to be on the panel my first instinct was to tell him no. (laughs) Um, I'm like, I have not read graphic novels before. I'm not really sure how to add to that conversation. But I'm really glad that he came back um, and persuaded me, as Troy can, um, to to participate. Because I found this book to be really interesting. And what a great book to take a launch into a new genre. Um, I think that this one really connected with a lot of my own um, things that I'm interested in, that I like considering I teach graphic design. I'm a very visual person, so I feel like this book really was a great thing to allow me to enter this new, new world that I haven't been in. And what I, I did a couple, to, to mirror a couple of things on the book here, I, I dug up a couple of facts about visuals and how we as humans interact with visuals. So 90% of the information that we process in our brain is a visual image. That's the first thing that kind of happens. It takes 13 milliseconds for the human brain to process that image as opposed to text or any other auditory kind of messaging. 60,000 times faster we can absorb an image than we can um, absorb text or auditory information. And 80% of people remember what they see compared to 10% of what they hear and 20% of what they read. So I think that that is really interesting statistics that really support a lot of the things that happen within this book and with my experience. Because I also, after having a conversation with um, a few other people, realized, let me see what this book is going to be like um, if I just get the audio book and listen to it. And so I just listened to it and how disconnected. I think that that's such a um, connection to what Cheryl just said was that whole um, disconnect and not having that connective tissue when you're listening to it. So then I listened to it again while looking at the imagery and flipping through the book. And it really, the images support what's happening inside of the book so well and draw you from chapter to chapter and each chapter has its own kind of color theme that connects you to what's being said in those chapters. So I think that that's a really um, important thing to remember about these. And I think that like, I found one of my new favorites, so thank you, Troy, favorite um,
1: types of books to read.
3: And I think I'm gonna look in the library and see what we have for, for next.
1: If I could piggyback back off that. Um, I completely agree. I fell into it and I immediately had very close, personal experiences come up, like bubbled up all of these ancient memories of journal keeping when I was a very lonely teenager. And I'm similarly aged as Kristen uh, Radke. And there's just moments in, you know, that lonesomeness of being like a teenage girl that I would just pour into a journal And it would go off into a rant, like, about an observation that I had earlier that day or, like, something that I learned in history class, and then it would come back around to a very personal moment, like conflicts with my parents or friends that I have. And um, I just, yeah, also had that, that moment of, like, musing over why and how loneliness affects us so much.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the magical things about this book, is that it just feels so personal. It feels like she's writing about me, even though she's writing about this giant topic of loneliness.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of the ways, and I know we're gonna talk about this in the next question, um, but I think the choices that she's making about how to put the book together, emphasize that idea of disconnection and connection over and over again.
0: All right. Um, So let's stop number two at the second question. Are there ways that Radke's style amplifies the feeling of isolation and loneliness that the book is exploring? Her visuals?
1: Yes. Oh, yes. There are several moments in the book that I was completely taken aback. Particularly, there was one page um, that I don't know if it was even intentional on her part, but it's page 124. And um, it talks about these giant pillars in basically the desert of Las Vegas. And uh, she talks about it on one page, but then you don't even realize it but it's out of the corner of your eye. Those two spires are in in your visual range on the right. Um, and it, even just like that little panel, you can see it up here on the board. Um, it makes you kind of, it dawns on you that like you are in that isolated moment, and but you see the world from afar and from the distance. And it's, it, it's visually portrayed very well.
2: I love the colors in that one too uh rebecca would you mind clicking my slides i just have three little kind of connection points that i noted um in looking at the art of the book one thing i noticed was just the focus on the body in isolation and so and there are many more pages i could have grabbed for this but just the idea of you know, a body floating or a body standing with nothing else around it. Or in the last one, the body looking at the computer screen and the glow of the screen on the person's face. Um, over and over again, I think that kind of amplifies that feeling of isolation. And some sometimes it's not even just a floating body. It might be parts of a body. So there are pages where we see just eyes everywhere or um, you know, just a part of her face as she's looking at the glow of the screen and so on. So we see that a lot, I think, in different moments in the text. Another, another thing I wanted to mention, um, just visually, is that um, sometimes we get um, places where, you know, like often the illustrations are, um, they're illustrating or giving a visual depiction of what Radke is actually talking about Right, Um, But there are moments like this segment um, in the book where what she is writing about, um, she's not necessarily writing about um, drowning in water, um, but this image that we get pages and pages of really a similar image of different individual people sinking into the water, um, as she's really talking about um, her interest in writing about this topic. Like it adds this extra dimension to what she's saying. And there's just an emotional weight that those pages and those illustrations give us. And there's all this like white space. I mean, we have this tiny body in the middle of this big page. Um, And so again, I just think it really adds uh, a lot of uh, like emotional quality. It amplifies that feeling of loneliness that she's talking about. Um, And I had one more slide, and I don't know if I accidentally went the wrong way. Let me see here. Oh, Okay. Um, I I know that uh, I'm sure Chris is going to talk about this too, but just the color palette, uh, which is very muted. And what I grabbed here were pages from different sections of the book. uh, Because of course, in different sections, um, she's using a different combination of colors. And it seems usually that there's two colors. Uh, Maybe sometimes there's only one. It has a real monochromatic quality to it as well. But All we really get is one or two colors and different gradations of color to show um, reality. And it creates, I think, different effects, at least for me. Um, We never get a full palette, like something's missing. Um, And that was a a way that I I took it, that was a way I was interpreting it, that we never get the full spectrum of color, right? And never, even though we might get different colors at different moments in the book, um, the other feeling that comes to mind for me is, especially in the last panel uh, with everyone on the train, because there is a limited um, color palette there, um, the people end up looking kind of ghostly, you know, because you, you know, you're trying to show contrast between the seat and the people. And so in the choices that she's making about doing this art, it, it ends up feeling like ghosts. And again, I think that amplifies the, the subject that she's writing about. I mean, you're, oh, you're, um, yeah. So even the pages that introduce the sections, they, she's using those the colors, you know, the
3: the darker gray, and then the second section is that orange color, which we see in your illustration up there, and then you know, so again, just setting that tone, I think is
2: really smart, and and again, very little on those pages, maybe a word or nothing too, so. It's like this, this visual cue that yeah. we're okay, now we're yeah, gonna yeah. go on to something new. So, so it's cool. very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I'd like to just add um, definitely the muted color palette, I think, throughout the entire book and the limited color range and using tints and shades only of color really help emphasize that. But even down to the basics of the elements of art and um, some of the basic principles of, of design and how they, she sets up individual pages themselves really lend their way to this. I think the first, um, if you want to go back to the book, that first chapter um, where I showed you... Um, where they're doing the Morse code section, um, and while she's finding that page, um, I'll, I'll continue talking. But the way she sets sets us up for the journey just straight from the beginning, the first page of the chapter is that dark, dark blue, and it's all this this monochromatic blue. As we go through, keep going a couple more pages, um, and she talks to us. You can stop right there, please. Thank you, and then. Just even how she explains the title of the book and how she comes along with the title of the book and sets up this idea of seeking and longing is the first thing she talks about and referencing her own memory to add to that seeking and longing. And then she goes into this series of pages with this isolated person on the screen with some voices off in the distance and always these swirls, basic lines, but lines can say so much. How are they drawn? What direction are they drawn? Are they scribbly and scratchy? Are they firm and... and and strong to show a steadiness and she always has this very soft kind of line weight throughout the entire entire book but i feel like this particularly and if you could go to the next page and she sets us up there's not really a lot of dialogue in these next couple of pages but i feel like they're so important in setting us up into um, the space of the book where we just can imagine this person sitting at his house listening and waiting for those beeps and clicking. And at one point she talks about um, when you actually connect with someone that they write down that they connected with you as it verifies that you exist. And for me, I felt like that was such a very poignant um, part to the topic. Also, something that maybe people might not have noticed, as we're waiting for that to maybe go to the next page, (laughs) is the, the handwritten text and that it's all center aligned. Now, in graphic design, the biggest thing that you learn is large blocks of text, you don't center align them because it creates a ragged left and a ragged right, which slows the reader down in the reading. So was this an intention? on the artist's part or the the writer's part to slow us down as we read so that we can absorb some of that loneliness? Or is it just a modern con- convention that's kind of happening there? I'm noticing as more and more people do it on social media, more and more students are coming in and wanting to center align larger blocks of text. So I feel like that's, that's something to question is what was the decision behind um, behind that and why they chose to to write the text in that sort of way and then in different sections jumping to different types of handwriting so you can see we'll go back to this part where it just continues and goes beep 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 and you just you can feel the loneliness and the separation between people again a lot of positive negative space the positive space being the people always being smaller and the negative space being the larger black areas where we feel like we can just we're floating off into this space and we can have that quiet moment and so I think that just we, we got set up right in the beginning to understand how she was going to use the colors to understand how she was going to use the space on the pages and that guided us to feel what we were going to feel.
4: Well, mm-hmm. she grew up with a father who liked his ham radio, and she, she later goes to the book and talks to the uncle, and the uncle like, talked more about the ham radio. So it seems like she had a, child, a lonely childhood, and she's setting mm-hmm. us up to saying, this is how I was lonely. I was lonely as a child. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was disconnected from her father. Maybe he was too into his ham radio and not into her. Right. And maybe that's how she set up her loneliness
3: hmm Well, and that continued searching, I think that one of the big themes for me as well throughout is it's a continued searching for connection. Whether you're, you have, like, she's always talking about the loneliest, but it's that searching that's the part
1: that hit me. She touches on it again when um, she's talking about her great-grandmother and, like, having to see her dead body mm-hmm. and, like, that it was a a waking experience for her but she started again like thinking about that connection between like all of her maternal relatives that they all eventually died alone because like they were widowed and um, that like silent cry for connection but being reserved about it at the same time and just knowing that that's like potentially your fate was also like a part of that like reaching to connect with family.
0: Thank you guys. Um, Let's move on shall we? So this is a book that's not just exploring life during a pandemic. It's trying to pull various threads from American culture to account for the particular brand of isolation we might be feeling right now. What are some of the insights Radke presents? Does the format of the book as a graphic novel help clarify the threads that she's seeing in our culture or help us process what she's saying?
2: I'll jump in with just uh, one comment and then um, I can jump in again with, with other comments. I, I know we all have a lot of thoughts in response to this one. Um, one thing that I noticed and I, where I tried to pay attention to the second time I read the book was just how it was organized. And so there's a single word at the beginning of each section, listen, watch, click, touch, and then it goes back to listen. And, um, and really, uh, in my mind, I feel like she's organized the entire book, just like Chris was saying, around the idea of that CQ call. Um, and there are various forms of seeking out that we do. So listen is about the radio, right? Um, watch is about television. Um, and the laugh tracks that we learn about. Click is the internet and social media. And then of course, all the Harlow experiments are about touch. Um, and then we go back to listen and Casey Kasem, which was, that was like one of my favorite parts because we totally, um, for me, because of my age, that was very relatable to me. Um, I remember always listening to that and to those particular um, letters that people would write him um, trying to seek out another person. Um, but while she's doing this, while she's presenting these ideas and these various forms of like seeking out connection, um, there's this other topic of technology, right, that's really all over the place, and how, over time, we have new devices that um, purportedly are going to bring us new ways of connecting, um, but they also are maybe amplifying feelings of, like, disconnect, right, and not connecting, like, there's, it's both, um, And I don't know that she really necessarily is like anti-technology, I think she isn't. Um, I think she pushes back against that. I think it's easy for us to say, oh well, you know, social media is is bad. Um, That's why people feel lonely because they're constantly looking at images of other people's wonderful lives. Um, And I don't think Radke is saying that at all. Um, I think that she reminds us that we always have nostalgia for a time that never really existed. So we can look back at any time and say, oh, it was different back then. But really, it, it wasn't. So, um, so, it, so I think that's an interesting element of the book, just this idea that she's arranging it around all these ways that we might seek out each other. Um, and then underneath it all is an exploration of these various devices with which we are always trying to maybe do that. And it's that need to connect and, and not just connect, but be seen that I think is really important. You know, even for her dad um, doing those CQ calls, it wasn't necessarily that he was looking for a friend. He just wanted to be seen. He wanted to know that somebody saw his existence, right? Um, and I think that's a thread that goes through all the sections of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of
3: the notes that I've, I have written here is there's an interesting connection here between modern day technologies and how they both simultaneously connect us and draw us apart. And I feel like um, one of the things that I studied in grad school years ago um, was this notion of having a data double, meaning that there is this existence of ourselves or this representation of ourselves in the online world, in the, in somewhere online, whether it's social media or it's about purchases you made off of Amazon and how they track your ordering and how all these ads pop up for those things. Well, what happens when I buy gifts for my parents or for you know someone else in my life that I care about? Now all of a sudden those things are attributed to me rather than attributed to the correct person. And all of a sudden you have this second, third, fourth, fifth identity of who you are. And so I think for me, that was one of the interesting things that I found through this is it seems like a lot of times and a lot of these connections dealt with that kind of a topic of how we connect and disconnect. And I've had this discussion since we moved a lot of classes online. um, And there's a big push to to come back to normal and be on campus. But in my department specifically, it's somewhat different because I teach in digital. And so a lot of my students love being able to stay at home and do what we do at home. Um, and But how do you get that connection from people when they're in that remote setting? And I think that that's, that's one of the things that I wrote over and over in my notes as I went through the book was this connection between how we're presenting ourselves versus how we're experiencing. And I think that that's something that this book I felt did Pretty well, was helping us recognize that there is a difference between the way we experience that. Um, and that it's just bringing these topics that are somewhat taboo in our culture into the forefront. You know, don't tell somebody you're lonely because then they don't want to hang around with you because, like they said, the three separations of loneliness and how it travels um, through people. I don't remember what page that was on in the book, but and how, when you're in a group, that can kind of travel through. Um, so this bad taboo of don't tell someone that, and I, it brings it so forward and allows you to have this wonderful conversations like this panel discussions and with friends about this this topic that's
1: been somewhat taboo. Yeah. Yeah, and to follow up with that, um, culturally, loneliness uh, is well represented in the pages that she has on um, page 148, And 159, um, about how, like, one ends up closing the ranks. And that was a really good quote here. In her 1951 book, Hannah Arden writes that loneliness is, quote, the common ground for terror. And as we lose contact with one another, so too do we begin to perforate ourselves from reality. Um, I come from a state that is very heavy on... uh, guns and um, my country and, you know, you guys get the picture. Um, And I connected with that because it's like, it's almost alarming to the point where it's like you've these, that uh, America as a culture will close the wagons to like make, make themselves feel safe and that they're a part of something bigger but they're really just making themselves even more tinier and tinier and closed off from the world to the point where they're not even connected to their family anymore um because they just choose this like this way of rationalizing their loneliness like they're justified in it and um this is how they come out of it and i just think an uh, from an american standpoint that's definitely where loneliness is winning and um and it's not good, and, I, and she touches on it, and it's, and it's a problem. It's, it's a pandemic in itself.
2: I just want to piggyback on Rebecca's comments because this whole idea of um, how one can become like untethered, and I think that's a word that Radke uses a couple of times, like from reality, is, is tied to like the idea of perception, which is something that she seems to explore a lot in this book. Um, So, and it goes throughout the book. Um, So like how we misperceive things, right? And how loneliness and isolation like can change our perceptions. Um, We might assume that others aren't lonely, for instance. That's a a thread that she really explores. So we misperceive that in others. We could be made to perceive Ourselves as not lonely because of laugh tracks, right? So, again, like our perception of our own situation is affected by hearing that. Um, And there's definitely, in the even the pages that Rebecca had mentioned, uh, like 149 and 150, this section where Radke is really exploring how like prolonged isolation can cause us to perceive rejection everywhere. So, it changes our view of reality. And she says on 150, um, she says, loneliness draws us to the worst possible conclusions. I feel alone becomes everyone is against me. This is hard becomes everything is terrible. Uh, I don't know that person turns into that person is a threat to me. So there's this like hypervigilance that, um, that Radke talks about. And again, the, the, the more we don't have contact with people, the more we start to really untether from reality itself. And, then we, and and again, like she ties that to the Harlow experiments. She ties that to the, the shooters. Um, and so it's, it's definitely a, an element of, of American culture that she's kind of digging into here. I think something that's really
0: interesting to know is that this was in progress before COVID hit. And I think it, what, it hits extra hard and is extra impactful because we all have had that shared experience of almost forced loneliness. Mm-hmm. And everyone has dealt with that differently. But the fact that this was in progress before COVID was even a thing, I think it speaks to a lot of what she's saying about how loneliness is something that's always there, but we kind of pretend that it's not.
2: Well, and she ties it to uh, what we watch on television. You know, there's that whole section about the cowboy, mm-hmm. and um, and there's a real interesting conversation there about gender and um, roles for characters depicted by men, characters depicted by women, and you know, and it's this idea that loneliness is um, cool <laughs> if you're a man, as something to pity if you're a woman. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we see these sort of stereotypes, and I love that there's a spread, and I didn't write down the page number, but there's a spread where we just get a whole cast of these characters and what their traits were. Well, it's yeah. on 130. Yeah, yeah 130 and yeah. 131. So, and then for the for the women, um, it's like the the cutout. Um, paper dolls. The paper doll. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we get like images of, uh, you know, on television of characters who are who are cool because they you know avoid connection. Um, or again, like the lonely single woman who has no friends, but thanks to a man, uh, ends up with a family and a zest for life. Um, so she gives us all these examples and, and seems to posit that while the culture gives us these images, Research shows really the opposite, that the more we isolate, the more we close ourselves off from wanting com- companionship. So, like, the, the what we're seeing on TV is really the opposite of what reality is. Um, and so I think that's all very interesting. And again, none of that has to do with the pandemic, you know. So there are all these things that have already been a part of our culture that she's bringing out. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, given what rebecca you were saying about the pandemic there's there's very little devoted to that in in the book which is again really fascinating to me
3: yeah i actually i wrote down um from that chapter that you were talking about the american cowboy because that was something that i wanted to kind of bring up was this wild, wild west iconography, toxic um, masculine individuality. And she has a quote on page 130. uh, They're talking about the contemporary male TV protagonists, um, the anti-heroes being the antithesis of the themes. And she says, their loneliness is nothing to be ashamed of. Instead, there is something here to be envied because these men can come back into it anytime they want. And I felt like that really spoke a lot, that men have the opportunity or the option and women are seen as we don't have that opportunity or option and we are just this poor pitiful thing waiting and waiting and waiting until that cowboy comes along for us. And so I think that that, that sentence alone on 130 really spoke a lot to me when I was reading through that chapter.
1: On a side note, this is about halfway through the book and uh, some of the th- some of the, there's like a subtle humor going on I think to kind of like break up the heaviness of the text mm-hmm. like Donald Draper from Mad Men mm-hmm. it's like drinks Alka-Seltzer for breakfast. Yeah. Guy from Walking Dead, women he loves keep women he loves keep getting eaten by zombies. It's like that's that's hilarious actually. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: there's definitely some attempts at like some kind of levity, but it's an incredibly heavy text, very difficult. You know, it's amazing to me um, how difficult it is to to read. And I can't help but think about whether um, having it be a graphic novel makes it easier to to work with. You know, in my classes, we use a lot of Linda Berry, and she she talks about doodling, um, and this is relevant somehow. Um, She talks about doodling and how um, the reason we might doodle is to be able to remain in the class so we can keep listening to the lecture that's being given. Like doodling helps us stay, right, to stick with it. Um, And she talks about that with regard to um, uh, fantasy, like we read fantasy. We're not trying to escape our lives. We're just trying to deal with our lives and be able to survive that and, and stick with it. And the fantasy helps us do that. Um, and, and there's a part of me that thinks the drawings and the illustrations in this book operate that way too, that it helps us deal with the heaviness of the material um, that she's exploring.
4: And he always surrounded himself by women. He had a wife, then he had another wife, and then he always had mistresses. So even though he was around women and everything, he was actually very lonely. And he had, like, a traumatic childhood. So I think even if you're surrounded by people, you can still be very lonely. I think
2: that was the point she was trying to make. Oh, and I think with all the, the Harlow stuff, you know, like, she it's interesting because... You know, she, of course, focuses on his experiments because they are relevant, this idea of touch and what what he learned from them, as grotesque as they were. But she spends a lot of time talking about his personal life because, again, there's like a mirroring there and there's a way that she is talking about that because he had lots of people he was with, too, but extreme loneliness as well. And you can't help but wonder if that isolation that he had um, caused him to... Feel like he could be more aggressive in some ways with the subjects of his experiments. Heartbreaking. Oh, really, and all of those videos are on YouTube. Um, oh no, no, thank you. And I haven't wanted to go look at them. <laughs> I remember learning about him. When, one of my degrees is in psychology, and I just remember learning about him. You know, back in the day.
3: Yeah, and I think since we're just talking about that, let's, if we can bring up 306 and 307, because I think she does a really wonderful job here in in showing almost this madness and this um, severe isolation and how it really can um, affect. And if you go back one page, because they, she has that image of Harlow there in the corner, um, just surrounded by all this scribbly, um, black, dark lines. And you can just see him with this sad face and it really drives home the point of what's happening. These monkeys starting to, to like lose their minds and, and he- separate Separate from reality and just those separate little bubbles. This is one of the few places that she does this inside of the book where around the object is just a light separated um, glow that shows you that physical separation as well as all of that madness. And when you go to the next page, that poor single small monkey encased in nothing but this scribbly swirl. And notice how much smaller that white area is around that poor little guy to really emphasize what's happening to his psyche and, and his state of mind. I think that this particular part of the book really, it was heartbreaking. I almost couldn't make it through. And without the visuals, I think um, I might have had to stop or skip, skip that section for sure.
1: I did too.
0: Um So, given all the paths Radke takes us down throughout the book, what are some of your takeaways?
1: Well, I'll go back to what I said earlier about having immediate connection with feelings of like you know teenage angst and loneliness. I was grounded a lot as a teenager, so I was by myself and left to my thoughts a lot, so I have like boxes of journals from like the age of 13 to 16 and and i would muse about you know like i said the you know the the world around me um and vent and um that and like i said like she's a similar age as as me like we're both in our like 30s and um just coming out of like i guess that prolonged adolescence that the 20s can be no offense to you know people in their 20s But like finally realizing that you are an adult with a life, and you know, and everything around you, and and you go back to this like, where do I stand in life, in society, and um, with that bigger picture in mind of like of loneliness, and do I still have it? Do other people around me have it? And and then you realize you do, and they do.
2: I think one of the takeaways for me is just the idea of being open. Um, you know, I think about, like I have a 10-year-old son and, um, and, you know, he'll come home from school or something and I'll ask him how his day was or whatever and, you know, he be, and I'll ask him about his friends and he'll be like, oh, I don't have any friends. And, and I'm just like, hmm, you know, I, I don't think that's true. But, um, but we'll, uh, what I try to tell him is I'll, I'll tell him to be open to the idea that people might be asking him things because he'll be like, yeah, some kid just keeps talking to me. I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> and I'll tell him, you know, that person is probably trying to be friends with you. <laughs> like, be open to that, and maybe ask them some questions in return. Uh, sometimes, we're, our, our, like, our radar isn't on, and we're not paying attention to, to what other people are doing, or what other people are feeling. And, um, and it's easy to just look away or not engage. And when someone's like reaching out, like even to my son, it's like the CQ call. Answer the call, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so that's one of the big takeaways I have.
3: And I think for me, one of the big takeaways was um, this idea of dueling narratives that we experience um, when we see each other or when, like we always think somebody else has something better or um, we see what they're writing online and we think that their life is so much better and these other things are happening and they must not feel like I feel. And I feel like that to me was a really important, and she actually talks about that on page 227 with the that Twitter and the thoughts and prayers being with you. And I really think that um, for me that hit home is understanding that what you're experiencing, what your brain might be um, telling you may not necessarily be the reality of what's happening and how can we reframe what we're experiencing, what we're seeing, which I think mirrors off of what um, Cheryl just said. And I think the other thing for me, which is the last page of the book. And I feel like her big thesis through the whole thing was something like, we simply need each other. We simply need each other. And so we we can be open to that. And she writes, and when we call out across an airwave or a telephone or a chat room or an app or a city street or an open field or a bedroom, I want us to hear each other miraculously, a voice calling back. And I feel like the the hopefulness, and even just the color palette of this last little chapter, it really just brightens up. It turns into these salmony, warm colors and yellow tones that allow you to make some connection. And the person in the window um, in this particular page has yellow surrounding them so that that becomes the focal point and draws you in, and you can draw that connection between you and them. I think that that was was maybe the biggest takeaway for me in the book.
4: The takeaway for me was that as humans, I don't think we're supposed to be lonely. I think we strive for interaction, like how the monkeys and how they really deteriorated when they were taken away and isolated. I think as humans, we actually need each other, and we, need, we don't need false things like the ham radio or the internet. We need actual interactions with people, um, actual touch and hearing voices and everything like that. Um, The takeaway to me also is that if you're lonely, you're not the only one that's lonely. There's other people lonely out there.
3: And I'd like to add that there's help if you need help. Just reach out and um, there's always going to be somebody there that can support you.
0: Great. Thanks, everyone. Um, I think we have a few more minutes if anybody has any questions they want to ask our lovely panelists.
2: Yes, I have a question. That's why I came up to get the microphone. Um, Chris, I really liked your um, how you described the end of the book because I think, may, and this is maybe my simplistic reading, <laughs> even though we helped pick the book, is I feel like it didn't give us the neat bow that you might um, expect from a lot of books, take you through all this loneliness and have kind of a prescriptive, if you don't want to be lonely, step one, do this, step two, do this. Yeah. I mean, she really doesn't do that, right? She right. kind of Give some suggestions, but kind of hands you a problem and maybe a solution, but leaves it up to you to think about how we interact with other people, which I think adds a complexity to the book itself. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, I, w- I don't know if that's really a question or a comment, but I guess I'd bring that up just to see what you think about that. It's not a self-help book. No, no. <laughs> you know, no. not at all. But I also think, just to add on to what you said, Troy, um, there are a lot of ways where, and this is maybe what makes the book difficult, she holds a mirror up Right mm-hmm. for, for us to look, and, and one example I think of is um, in the internet section where she talks about the woman who um, live-tweeted her husband's death. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that whole section ended up being about how we use other people as like a yardstick to see that we're okay, we're not like that person, we wouldn't do that, um, we're, we're better than that. And so there are all these little moments in the text where you know, and, and she is trying to help us, I guess, in that regard, you know, to, to make us aware that humans do this, and and so again, um, you know, we have to be open to recognizing that and maybe thinking about that as we interact with people that we can't see or you know, we don't know their whole story and all of those sorts of things. So so yeah, I mean, it's really again, it's tough, it's like tough love in some ways, but she doesn't mm-hmm. really offer solutions, but she's offering this information and insight.
3: Yeah, and I I think that that, what I like about that and why I spoke about that last page in the book is because I connect to that. Uh That's part of the way, actually, I teach my courses um, because it's art and design. A lot of people want you to give them an answer, like two plus two is four, and that's not the way art and design works. And so I like giving open-ended questions. And I like books that end like this more so that it allows me to make some determinations on my own on now what? What do I wanna do? How do I wanna experience that? What parts are important? How can I absorb that? What, what kinds of things can come from that next? Um, and I'm hoping that my students, because we're doing a project with this book this semester, and I'm hoping they can get s- something out of it
4: similar. Oh, mm-hmm. I was going to say the last picture, like the girl is surrounded by yellow and yellow represents warmth. Mm-hmm. So I think it's show, trying to show like other people can give us warmth and light. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, very, it's a very hopeful color. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's, um, it's a nice, invi- I think it's almost as like an invitation to, to look at this topic with her. And then in that itself is a cure in loneliness.
3: And one of the things I find interesting is that as you go through the book, you'll see there are pages where she uses that yellow like it's coming from the monitor of a screen and it's drawing your eye in. And then there's one where there's a building and there's some people inside and it draws your eye into that particular um, set of loneliness. She um, does it when uh,
2: there's a story with the selfie Mm -hmm. in front of the woman's um, art display where Mm -hmm. the art is... Uh, really meant as a critique of the people who are taking the selfies, mm-hmm. but there's a yellow glow on that page too that mm-hmm. I, it was really cool.
3: And so that's, that's like
2: the the theme that kind of
3: runs through and allows us that focus. I think it's very purposefully done throughout each one of the chapters to, to really pull us from most of it's all, like most of the entire book is cool colors and really low key colors. Then you have this these sections of where you have these oranges to yellows that just pull you in to, to see that, surrounded by all this, see like the page I'm talking about, is page 49 just this all sea of this this green around this little bit of um, yellow at the bottom left hand corner. And so you can feel like that that loneliness in that green but also you're looking at this TV screen that points this triangular shape um, to the woman and that's sitting there feeling lonely looking at her TV. So it's really just, it's a, a convention that's used over and over and over again to point you at that visual.
0: All right, I think that's a good place to end unless anybody has anything else. Uh, oh. I, I that you guys were starting off talking about graphic
4: novels. I have a 15 year old. She doesn't read, oh, she doesn't read real books, but she's not <laughs> in high school. But she loves graphic novels, and a lot of graphic novels were books that were written, and then they t- turn around and make them graphic novels. Like *The Babysitting Club*, they redid a- *Anna Green Gable*. They made a graphic novel of so they take classic books and they kind of turn around and make them graphic novels. Mm-hmm. And she loves graphic novels, and she's in honors English, so I think she's doing okay. Yeah,
2: graphic novels are real books.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> mentioned. They're, kind of condensed. they're not like a, the real book. I not- find that when I use them in the class, my students have great difficulty reading them. Um, that it 's very um, disarming and uh, and especially because I use the work of Linda Barry, and her style is very unique but but in general, like whenever i 've used a graphic novel it's definitely um, it depends on the, the student and whether or not they 've experienced them before
4: um,
2: but it, is, it can be a, i mean it 's a really different way of reading a text um, but yeah, I mean and I think that 's why there are these texts where they 'll take a, a, a classic and, and, and try to put visuals to it and create this new version of it um, that can be experienced differently and that can be appealing to different kinds of readers for sure. And, And
3: allow people to connect more because the visuals, like I said, with all the statistics in the beginning, we can absorb them more quickly. And I think one of the reasons why I hadn't read graphic novels before, the ones that I've seen were like all the, you know, Looked comic booky and came from the DC comics, or like my husband has a whole bunch of ones that are like Riddler and Joker and that sort of thing. And I was like, oh, I don't. No, that's not interesting to me. I'm not, like, I like watching comic book films, but I'm not like a comic book person. And so when I first seen them, I was like, oh, no, no, thank you. And so, you know, I'm really happy that I, I got to read this book and be part of this panel because now I have a whole new thing that is really interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to experiencing different books that way. And oh, okay.
2: Um, one of yeah, my there's actually a lot that are are definitely more adult reading material.
1: Mm-hmm. When I was about eight years old, I was allowed to purchase a um, graphic novel that redid uh, the house, follow the House of Usher. Um, this was like when I first started becoming an artist, like I started displaying talent, so my parents allowed me to buy it, and uh, it probably helped develop my love of horror, and it also scared the crap out of me. Um, but I also it the everything from like the layout and color and imagery um, really reinforced the idea that like uh, even the classics can be just you know a wild imagination when you give it a chance and just to go off I this is our first time meeting but I love Linda Berry and she helped me get through some dark times in the tw- in my early 20s and right. her graphic novels are great and uh, Chris Ware I also wanted to throw out his name and I think he actually did a review Or he gave a little blurb. I I saw his name come up, but Chris Ware also has some really beautiful, quaint um, observations about life and relationships that I highly recommend.
0: I think that's almost one of the reasons that we're doing this panel is to show that graphic novels aren't just comic books and superheroes. There's so many different layers to the graphic novel format. And a lot of people have to learn how to read a graphic novel because it's not as intuitive if you've been reading a book for 20 years just with the words. It's a different part of your brain that needs to be activated to understand the pictures and the words. And so I think that's one of the things that we are trying to achieve here is to show that this cool nonfiction work is a graphic novel. Like how awesome is that?
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, definitely when, if you only have the words to work with, I mean, you have to generate all that stuff. And so it it does feel different when we're reading a graphic novel. Um, but yeah, I, just like Rebecca was saying, uh, referencing Chris Ware, uh, if you really dive into this subject and into the idea of graphic novels, every artist who creates these texts has such different ways of like actually, depicting things that are happening in the story and um, and sometimes it can be incredibly difficult to read Sometimes it can be easier to read Um, And I think for me like I want to say the first true graphic novel I read was art Spiegelman's Mouse which is about the Holocaust and um, and it's the style of that text feels a little more comic book like to me, Um, but It's been a while since I've read it But it's beautiful, and again, difficult subject matter, but it's probably one of the most famous graphic novels of all time.
3: I was just gonna go off the idea of comparing this book to a non-visual book. Do you think if this had been written as a non-visual book, would there be messaging that'd be lost? Like what would be lost in either translating it to that format or just having been written in that format to begin with?
2: I mean, I think it would be, uh, non-fiction as a genre is a a really popular genre um, for like straight text. Um, and so there's tons of books on all different sorts of subject matters. It's a really popular genre. Um, but I don't know necessarily that I would pick up the book. Um, I, there's something that I, really unique about this book uh, that I've really enjoyed, and I think part of it is the visual elements. Um, I think, and I think I said this before, that the idea of reading a straight text version of this would be incredibly difficult. I just think it's such dark material, and I think the visual representations help me be able to do that like be able to read it
3: yeah i agree because i listen to it on audiobook and just listening to it is so very different than seeing it and listening to it. It felt like there was a lot of disconnected moments and that there were some areas that could have used further development while you're you're listening to it. You're like, wait, how did we switch to this other chapter or this other section or this other part? And so when you have the book and you have the visuals, it really drew this line and connected things with just a fine line, but it connected them enough for you to be able to stay focused and stay interested. I found myself turning the audiobook off a little bit more often than when I was sitting and reading it, just because some of it was really like oh, Cheryl said, very heavy, <laughs> heavy, heavy, heavy material, yeah.
1: Yeah, it would almost read more like, a, um, like an article in, you know, National Geographic, you know, like a dissertation on, you know, mm-hmm. with, well, it would read more science than an observation, you know, you know what I mean? Um, yeah.
2: Like and again, I don't know if it would be dry, but it would yeah, be like, again, like this nonfiction genre, you know, would have its little cover and, you know, and, and, and I think it would lose a lot of the, like the audience, like it would, it would, mm-hmm. it would court a different kind of reader, um, so there's something, I think, really appealing about this book because it it does appeal to really anybody, um, and it allows us an entry into a really difficult subject matter. Yeah. Like maybe it's more approachable. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Yeah. All right,
0: that's our time. I just want to say thank you again to our amazing panelists thank and for you. everyone who came. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you yeah, for thank having you. us.